This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Senator Phil Graham began his career as a Democrat when he was elected to the U.S. Congress in 1978. But he resigned to run again as a Republican and was elected to the U.S. Senate from Texas in 1984, an office he held until he retired in 2002. One of his well-known legislative accomplishments is the Graham-Rudman Act, which placed the first binding constraints on federal spending. Senator Graham was the vice chairman of UBS Investment Bank for nine years, and currently is a senior advisor to U.S. policy metrics and a vice chairman at Lone Star Global Acquisitions. He joins me now for a closer look. Phil, you and I were in government together years ago. And looking back, was the Senate a different place than it is today? Yeah, Arthur, I think so. Um, And America is a different place today. Um, I once said if I ever wrote a book about Congress, and I didn't, it would be entitled Congress No Better Than the People. (laughs) And um, I think Congress reflects the fact today that when I went to Congress in 1978, the distribution of public opinion was a nice bell-shaped curve with most people in the middle. Today, it's a bimodal distribution where people have strong opinions and almost nobody is in the middle. And I think Congress reflects that. Uh, I think it's unfortunate that it's the case, but uh, the parties are deeply divided. And the country the two parties want is a very different country. And that's our problem. Now, General Mattis was asked what worried him most. And he didn't say North Korea or ISIS. He said it's the lack of a fundamental friendliness. Do you agree that the current political climate is becoming dangerously angry and partisan? Yeah, you know, Abraham Lincoln said that if if America was ever going to perish, that the threat wasn't coming from abroad, that we would live forever or die of suicide. And uh, I think that our biggest problems and threat have always been in the government in Washington. And I do think that it, today it is highly partisan. And uh, that's mixed with sort of mean-spiritedness, which I don't like. I, I can honestly say in my 24 years in government, on one occasion, I sort of lost my temper and said something stupid and I immediately called the senator and apologized. And in another case, I let something someone said to me offend me and I sort of got into a duel with an unarmed man and I felt guilty about it. But other than that, in 24 years, I never had harsh words with people. I tried to get along with people. I tried to realize that people had 
their agenda, their constituency. And, you know, my side lost elections. Uh, I accepted the fact that the country had gone in the other direction. There is no longer bipartisan compromise in Congress. Every issue becomes winner-take-all. What's preventing compromise? Is it the demands of big donors or something else? No, I think, I think the problem is that the objectives of the two parties are so different. Ronald Reagan used to say, if I want to go to Los Angeles from Washington and you're going to St. Louis, I'll just travel along with you. But if you want to go to Miami, why would I want to go to Miami? And the problem is, is the two parties want a very different country. And there's not a lot of commonality about what it is they're trying to do. As you remember, I'm sure, when you were running the SEC, you and I didn't agree on everything, but I never had any doubt that you were trying to do what you thought was best. I always respected the fact that you were one of the few people I ever met in government that if you saw facts that convinced you that you weren't right, that you could change. It's a very rare quality. It's one of the reasons you were the greatest SEC chairman of my lifetime. Today, people want such different things, and they're mutually exclusive. You can't have a society where government plays a bigger role uh, and a society where there's more freedom and opportunity. I mean, it's just they're mutually exclusive, and that's the problem. And I don't, the solution to it is America has got to decide what kind of country do we want? And when they decide, then People in government have got to listen to the decision that is made by the public. Democracy works only when the loser of elections sits down. When the loser of elections refuses to sit down, then democracy itself begins to be threatened. That, that worries me. Phil, Steve Bannon plans to run multiple insurgent primary challengers against GOP incumbents in 2018, even after the Roy Moore loss. How do you feel about what he and his backer, Bob Mercer, are doing to the party? Well, I, I'm not for it, but, you know, it's a free country, and they can run and support whoever they want to support. But it does seem to me that you're under some obligation if you participate in the primary process and your candidate loses to support the candidate that wins. That, I think, is, uh, uh, is sort of how the system works. So I don't know that it's useful, but on the other hand, competition is a good thing. And so that's not what worries me. What worries me is when people lose elections, they then don't step aside and let the people who won the elections govern. Uh, they want to obstruct. And my view was always imperfect, I'm sure, but my view was that when Bill Clinton, for example, won the election, that in winning the election, he had the right to appoint his own people 
and uh, except under extraordinary circumstances, I supported his nominees. After all, he'd won the election. The last time there was a major reform of tax policy was in 1986, and you were a sitting senator at that time. That was a bipartisan effort debated over a long time. Why the rush this time? And are you comfortable with the disregard for bipartisan support for a bill so massive? Well, of course, I was there in 1986. It was a pretty remarkable achievement. We had a chairman, Bob Packwood, who was one of the most brilliant people that I worked with in American government. And he was able to put together a simple idea that we needed to get all of the special interest provisions we could out of the tax code and use the savings to lower rates. And it was an idea that sold. We had strong bipartisan support. And um, as it turned out, the Congressional Budget Office sought the tax reform would have relatively little impact on the economy. In reality, it gave a second wind to a very strong recovery, and uh, the economy got, uh, moved forward very rapidly. Today, everything is different. The Democrats want to raise taxes, not cut taxes. President Obama was willing to lower the corporate rate, but only if Congress would raise revenues over a 10-year period by a total of a trillion dollars. There is no capacity now to have a bipartisan bill because the two parties want to do very different things on taxes. And I don't want to sound partisan myself, but it's almost as if there's no Bill Bradley, uh, a, a Democrat senator of my era, there, there are no Democrats who believe that everybody can benefit from inducing people to work, save, and invest. And so in this environment, it's, it's impossible to, to make bipartisan progress. Now, the Congressional Research Service found that after 2004 tax holiday to bring back foreign profits, companies distributed repatriated cash to shareholders, not employees. Do you think it will be any different this time? The shareholders own the company. But I think what our problem is, you know, better than anybody, a 35% corporate tax rate plus state and local taxes. America has the highest corporate tax rate in the world. And as a result, Nobody wants to earn money in America. So companies go to great lengths to try to earn money in other tax jurisdictions. And we even have the, the situation where people are trying to move businesses out of America, not because they don't love America, but because they have a responsibility to their investors to try to run the business as efficiently and profitably as possible. So we clearly have to cut corporate taxes. And in my mind, the bill is about creating incentives to invest in America by cutting the corporate tax rate, by cutting individual rates 
that apply to small business by letting companies that earn money abroad selling American goods to bring that money back without being taxed twice and to do away with some of the provisions in the tax code that are very destructive of family businesses like the death tax. And the goal is to create jobs. The goal is economic growth. The tax cut is only about $140 billion a year in a $20 trillion economy. That's a very small amount of money. So if you think that amount of money is going to change your life, you're probably going to be disappointed. But if we can get economic growth back like we had it prior to the financial crisis, that will change people's lives. So the objective here is to not give you more money. It's to make it possible for you to earn more money. The objective is not for government to solve your problems, but to make it possible for you to solve your problems. Phil, you said that America without 3% growth is not America. What do you mean by that? I mean that the reality that if you make an effort and you make reasonably good decisions, and you work hard, you're going to be successful. And that happens for the great majority of our people because the economy is successful. But without 3% growth or more, and we grew, Arthur, from the end of World War II until 2009, by 3.4% on average through 10 and a half recession. And then if you go all the way back to colonial America, we have averaged over any significant period of time more than 3% growth. What that's meant is, is that when mothers had dreams their children were going to have better lives, that dream came true. And so growth is critical to have in the country we have, a country where people can literally be born and grow up anywhere and still be very successful in America. Because America is successful. Now look, brilliant people are going to be successful anywhere under almost any circumstances. But ordinary people uh, are going to be successful when the country they live in is successful. And America's opportunity society with that strong growth has allowed ordinary people like Arthur Levitt and Phil Graham to do extraordinary things. And so that's why I said America can't be America. Uh, I said 3% growth, but actually it's economic growth. We have to be growing. The country has to be succeeding so that the vast majority of our people succeed. Will there be a conflict with the goal of growth from a huge tax cut and the Fed's plan to raise rates three times this coming year? Well, the... Part of our problem, and you always have problems, but part of the problem we face going forward 
is that in the last nine years, we have run up a huge debt. We've doubled the outstanding debt of the country. And the Federal Reserve Bank, directly and indirectly, bought almost half that debt. And so as the economy recovers and interest rates go up, they're going to have to begin to sell that debt to sop up all of these excess reserves that banks are holding. Um, and it's going at the same time, when rates rise, the cost of servicing the debt is going to go up so that government is going to be borrowing more money. And when the economy starts recovering, the private sector is going to be borrowing more money. So it's going to be challenging. Uh, can we get through it? I think so. Will it be hard and require a lot of good decisions uh, by uh, the government and by the Federal Reserve Bank? Yes. And as you know, we're going to have to deal with the fact that America is Americans are living longer, and uh, our entitlement program was established on the basis that the average person was going to live to be some 63 or 64. You didn't get any benefits till you were 65. Uh, we had some 40 workers for every retiree. Our situation today is very different, and all that's got to change. We have got to change the system ultimately where People are expected to work longer because they're healthier. Um, and we need to do it sooner rather than later so that we don't have to change the system uh, quickly so that people plan their lives on the basis of one set of rules, but actually something else happens. Phil, you're responsible for the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act that allowed banks, securities firms, and insurance companies to affiliate as part of a financial services holding company. How did Dodd-Frank change those rules? Well, paradoxically, it didn't. Uh, despite all the argument that was made that deregulation had somehow caused the subprime crisis, the reality was that there had never been deregulation in terms of reducing the requirements that insurance companies, securities companies, and banking companies had to meet. As, as you'll recall, there was no deregulation of banks, insurance companies, and securities companies, other by Graham Flyley, other than that we let them compete with each other uh, and affiliate with each other, but they were all subject to the same regulation by the same regulator that they were before. And in fact, I was so concerned that in the future we would develop new products that that wouldn't neatly fit into these three categories. And so I established a system where any dispute between regulators would immediately go to the D.C. Circuit Court. 
that would decide who the primary regulator was. But uh, when Dodd-Frank was written, they didn't change anything about Graham Leach Bliley other than forcing systemically significant organizations to become financial service holding companies under Graham Leach Bliley. Uh, what they did, of course, is imposed a whole new regulatory system on the financial system across the board. Now, on the Obamacare repeal that didn't happen, you said the GOP chose the wrong battlefield to fight on. What do you mean, and why didn't they have a replace plan ready after all these years? Well... What happened is, in trying to get something passed, they decided to use a process called reconciliation, which is a budget process. And the problem with the advantage of it is you only have to have 51 votes. The disadvantage of it is that it can only deal with money. It can only deal with policies that are directly aimed at um, expenditure. And so, as a result, the policy issues that were always at the heart of the dispute about Obamacare were out of bounds. They couldn't be dealt with. And so you ended up with a debate about who was willing to give more money to the beneficiary of beneficiaries of Obamacare, a debate Republicans were destined to lose, with no debate available about the freedom of the people who were being exploited by Obamacare. And so my argument was that we could never be successful on that battlefield, that we could defund Obamacare and then join, uh, challenge the Democrats to join Republicans to rewrite Obamacare, which at that point, A, they, they would have to, and B, they would be set free to do it. Today, in all fairness, Democrats can't change Obamacare without being attacked in their own party uh, as betraying the Obama program. They know it needs to be fixed, but they can't do it. Anyway, it was very frustrating to watch. Um, I'm, I, I, my concern about Obamacare is centered on the millions, millions of people who are exploited by the program by being forced into rigged risk pools where they're paying, in many cases, twice for insurance what it is really worth to them. And what I would like to see as a first reform is to give people the freedom to say, thank you for offering me this help. I really appreciate it, and the subsidies are very much appreciated, but I don't want it. Let me take my money and go outside Obamacare and buy my own insurance 
to meet my family's needs. That's what I want. He was an economics professor at Texas A&M for 12 years who went on to serve six years in the U.S. House and 18 years in the U.S. Senate from Texas. In the private sector, he was a vice chairman at UBS and is currently vice chairman at Lone Star Global Acquisitions. You can check the archives for the podcast of my interview with his son, Jeff Graham, who wrote a really great book studying shareholder activism called Dear Chairman. Senator Phil Graham, thanks for joining us. By the way, if you have comments about the show or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. It's 25 minutes past the hour. <laughs>